Grab your popcorn and silence those cell phones because the show is about to start. Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. Rick Blaine is an award-winning film critic featured on TheBigScreen.net.org and has been highlighted on over 75 unreleased independent film posters in less than 12 different countries. Nick Brown. He's been the high school projectionist for the AV Club for over nine semesters and can be heard nightly at the theater talking loudly in the row behind you about the film being screened. And now, they're joining forces. Ladies and gentlemen, Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. We're back for another round of Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. It's the podcast, the movie podcast. From Paul Bunyan Broadcasting, we're back once more chatting with you today. I'm Joel Hoover. I'm, I'm Joel Hoover. You're Joel Hoover. I'm, I'm pretty sure. I think if people are listening to the podcast right now, they're thinking, you're not Joel Hoover when you speak. I'm pretty sure. Aren't you Brooks Brookerson? Brooks Brookerson. I don't know. Who is Brooks Brookerson? Dave and Joel, delirious this morning on Tim Horton's uh Timbits, I guess. Well, that explains it then. An early morning sugar high rush. There we go. Dave Brooks and Joel Hoover, welcome back to the podcast, Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. Yes, since you're not seeing clearly and and thinking clearly, who knows what could happen here in the course of this next... This is Irish coffee, my goodness. Half hour, hour, however long this ends up going, this could be a a very interesting round of the uh, the podcast. But we're pleased that you have come along and joined us, so thank you for coming along today. Um, We are pleased to be sponsored by the Bemidji Theater right here in town. Uh, you can go online, cectheaters.com, if you want to check out showtimes and information regarding movies that are currently in and playing. If you need to get your It fix, you can go in there. The Bemidji Theater has got It playing, so you can go on over and check it out. You know, this week they should call the Bemidji Theater the House of Screams, because with It dominating the box office, now officially the biggest September R-rated opening, biggest September opening ever. It's uh, the House of Screams. People are freaking out over this movie. It really is incredible. The numbers, and we were just talking about what a rough box office there was during Labor Day weekend and and how tough things had been around Labor Day. And now it has just smashed things here as of late when it comes to the box office, when it comes to the grossing numbers. It has just been unbelievable how good it's been. And that's, that's been pretty encouraging for the... For the entire movie industry in general, just to see how well it has done. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, and it just kind of proves the old adage. A lot of people are saying, well, you know, people aren't going to movies anymore. I quote Field of Dreams. If you build it, they will come. And exactly. I don't mean the theaters. I mean a good movie product that people are going to scream their guts out. Even people that don't like horror movies like this movie. We're looking at you, Dark Tower. Yeah, yeah. Another Stephen Speaking King of Stephen work. King adaptations on what could have been. But yeah, it is is clearly making it a, a huge landmark as well um, for, for all that it's done. And people, not even horror fans, are enjoying going to see it because there's so much more to it than just this is a horror movie there's there's other parts too i've i've read about coming of age and all that and yeah. all that comes with that particular genre that that has added to why people are so interested in enjoying going to see it see i'm gonna have to just do a movie blitz one night i haven't seen it yet it's on my list but you know with a one-year-old it's difficult to get sitters and go correct so my wife and i we should get like a like a grandparent to come up and then she and i will just go boom 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 hit all these movies in a row i think that's a great idea it'd be hard but As, eh. oh, it would be hard and, and the other thing too is don't overindulge yourself to the point where movie plots and stories are running together and you don't get to have 
the full enjoyment of each movie. Honey, I don't, whatever it. happened to that clown? What, what what clown? What are you talking about? This is the Kingsman. Oh, that, I was thinking See? two movies ago. Oh, I'm exactly. sorry. Yep, exactly. So uh, that that makes me wonder when Shia LaBeouf did his marathon watching of every single movie he's ever been in. Do you remember when he did that in no, New York but City? I'm not surprised. He did that a couple of years ago. It makes me wonder. By the the middle toward end of it, did it all start to blur together for Shia? Did it all just start to to get to be too much? I mean, based on the the webcam. That was on him during that time. I, think I the, kind of wondered. I think the real question is: At what point did the rest of the audience realize they were sitting with a complete twit, watching his own movies? That's the question you need to ask. Come on. I think people De were Niro enjoying it. Doesn't do that. Then neither does Shia La, La Scam. Come on. This is no next. I think other people were enjoying it anyway. Check please. All right. Oh yeah. Who doesn't love watching a train wreck? Sure. All right. We'll move on from that. <laughs> We do have a topic for today. Uh, we're going to be discussing ensemble casts, and that was something that Dave and I were kind of compelled about to to chat about a little bit today because I'm sure you've seen ensemble movies. We've seen quite a few ensemble movies. Where did they come from? Um, diving a little bit into the history of them and some of the best ensembles that we've seen and maybe trying to unpack why it is so common today because it didn't used to be a commonplace thing. Now it's... You put all these stars into a movie together, and it it's not maybe as earth-shattering as it used to be. And maybe we can discuss what the future holds as far as ensemble casts as well, if there's going to be a, a huge coming together of stars in a movie in the future, and what would that look like. I think Avengers Infinity War might be our first indication of how that will look in a movie, and how much is too much sometimes, too, for yeah. being able to keep everybody controlled, all the puppets on a string. How do you do that in one show? Kind of hard to do, but we'll talk about that a little bit more later on. One piece of news that we kind of wanted to get into to to kick off the show today, and this is not necessarily new news in regards to the podcast and when we We were talking about about this, but it sort of came in the interim in between episodes that we recorded, and that was... Just came hours after the last podcast we recorded, Basically, we just missed it by a few hours. It was another directorial change in the Star Wars universe, and this time regarding episode nine. Yeah. Uh, Colin Tevereau, who'd got his start with a lot of independent movies and took his big step into the big pool he directed Jurassic World was tapped to direct Episode Nine, And on the heels of the young Han Solo movie, Chris Miller and Lord uh, being removed, now comes word that Colin Tevereau is removed, and in his place, the director of The Force Awakens, J.J. Abrams, is going to step in, kind of like Ron Howard with the young Han Solo movie, and he's going to finish this sequel trilogy. So you kind of ask you the question, what's going on over at Star Wars, that you've got two directors, or three directors technically, since uh, Miller and Lord were a team, that are being removed from Star Wars. And you had an interesting point on this. If you were a, if you were a filmmaker, you wouldn't go near this. That was my thought. I would have a tough time going near because of the creative licensing struggle that seems to be happening here between the powers that be within um within Lucasfilm and Walt Disney and and these guys and and gals who are stepping in and trying to direct these movies. And it, there, there seems to be a, a power struggle between what is our creative freedom that we have to be able to do these movies. And we, we saw this with, uh, with the young Han Solo movie, and now we're seeing this with this one, that there seems to be a vision that, that 
is thought is going to be in place, or at least an idea of how they want to direct the movie. And then the the powers that be are stepping in, and now for the second time are saying, "Whoa, we this isn't going to work. We need to make a change, and we need to come to a mutual decision on this. And then we're going to get a guy who we want to step in, who is going to do this justice, which I can understand. But my question is, how did this other person, or in the case of the Young Han Solo movie, people, get into this position if they're going to go and then do something that is completely different from what the powers that be who are making the Star Wars universe run want it to look like? Well, depending on what source you listen to and what you choose to believe, uh, it's always been the thought that there was a rough outline for this sequel trilogy that was written out by but between J.J. Abrams and Kathy Kennedy and her people and J.J. Uh, Abrams and so forth. And now each filmmaker just gets to flesh out their portion of the chapter. That's been believed by a lot of people, but a lot of the directors are saying doesn't it's not the case. That we have no idea where we were going with The Last Jedi. We just knew where we were picking up from The Force Awakens. I personally don't know if I believe that. I, I don't think I believe I th- that. I think it's been mapped out, but that's what they've said, so Okay. Um, but the other thing you got to ask is this, you know, when they started this new sequel trilogy and, and beyond with J.J. Abrams, they needed to take some safe steps because I think the trilogy or the, the, the franchise was in bad shape at that point. The sequel or the prequel trilogy eh, really didn't uh, wow a lot of people. So the story was similar to A New Hope. They brought in an established director like J.J. Abrams because it needed to get back on track and mission accomplished. Ever since then, they've taken some big, bold steps. Rogue One was like unlike any other Star Wars movie that had ever come before it, so clearly they're taking risks now. Right. And the talk that The Last Jedi is more akin to Empire Strikes Back is dark. You know, I got a feeling that the good guys are going to get their butts kicked, <sighs> something like that. Again. But, you know, you had you got Ryan Johnson, who's doing The Last Jedi. This is a guy that is also in a very similar trajectory as Colin, as, uh, Colin Tevereau, He's got a, a lot of experimental films in his background. You know, Looper was a fantastic sci-fi movie. And there's been, other than the death of Carrie and Fisher. And he did some excellent work with Breaking Bad Yeah, as that well. too. That, and he's got a great track history and a lot of creativity and you could perhaps say experimental, maybe, to a point. But others, aside from the death of Carrie Fisher, there's been nothing about The Last Jedi that's been troubled production, Hard times, I mean, nothing. It's been smooth sailing. So here's a director that, if he wanted to go off the rails, could, but he found that sandbox that we've all got to play in as kids. Now he's getting to play in it for real. So now here comes Lord and Miller doing the young Han Solo movie, and the word is they were trying to make more of a Spaceballs, a comedy right. set in the Star Wars universe, which, no, 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 they got the ratio wrong. And how close they got to Spaceballs, we don't actually yeah. know, but that's kind of the general idea that it was more comedic. Yeah, so now they're going in and changing the tone into more Star Wars. It'll have comedy, maybe more comedy than any Star Wars movie has, but it's not a straight-up Spaceballs. And then you've got the episode nine itch situation. And from what I, the outstanding is, uh, there have been some issues with the script. What exactly they have been, don't know. But script issues is, is the official term. But it sounds like more and more it's been a conflict of personalities. Colin Tevereau versus Kathleen Kennedy and her crew. Um, right. And but, so- but you are in Kathleen Kennedy's camp because of... The track record that she has. If she was going to have issues with you know personality conflicts, she would have had them by now. 
you know, she goes way back. I mean, we're talking the days of E.T. and Raiders of the Lost Ark. She goes that far back. In fact, I think she was a production assistant on 1941, which is a late 70s World War II comedy that Spielberg did. You've not seen it, but it's 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 worth a look, but it's not that great. Okay. Um, it's There's no broken bodies. There's no wake. There's no stories of Kathleen Kennedy made Henry Thomas cry and E.T. None of that. So, so why all of a sudden this need to have two teams of directors kicked out on top of one another could it be that she's protecting her friend george lucas's material and if someone's not respecting that sandbox out they go so ron howard has already played in that sandbox with willow he directed that one so now he's into star wars it's not it's not a far leap and he's accomplished director jj abrams did fine ryan johnson apparently the behind the scenes was fine we'll see how the movie turns out um, but now you got this comedic team of Miller and Lord that have done the Lego movie, and now you got Colin Tevero, who the word is just kind of had a personality conflict with not just her but others too. Maybe got a big head and a big ego on himself. Believe what you want, but that's what the talk is, and that's kind of what I tend to believe. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't blame them for wanting to get a plan put in place and wanting to wanting to follow through on it. And if there are issues like that to try to nip them in the bud sooner rather than later. It's just you could have avoided the trouble, it feels like. It just feels like they could have avoided the trouble had they maybe tried to screen, flesh this out, do things like that a little bit more in advance. But I know getting a director in place is not quite the same as getting an actor or actress into place. Well, and two things about that. You know, when they were getting ready to do this and they started looking at directors for, you know, any of these movies, a lot of big names were approached. And a lot of them said, oh, boy, the, I, couldn't, I, couldn't, I couldn't live up to that expectation. J.J. stepped up to the plate and did it. And I would argue knocked it out of the park, did exactly what he needed to do. And we'll hope he does it again with Episode Nine. But you also have Star Wars that offered a platform for up-and-coming guys, like Gareth Edwards with Rogue One, like Ryan Johnson with The Last Jedi, mm-hmm. and, and, and Colin Tevereaux, too, and Miller and Lord. This was their first live-action movie. Right. And after doing the Lego movie, and apparently they weren't up to the task. So you can make the argument that, you know, were they unprepared, or was this an opportunity for upcoming filmmakers that maybe hadn't dabbled in a sandbox this big, right. with the exception of... Uh, Tevero with uh, Jurassic World. That's a pretty big sandbox. Um, it's a possibility. Maybe they were overwhelmed a little bit. So you have to bring in the Ron Howard Definitely. to the J.J. Abrams. It's a possibility. People who but they know, gave him a chance. People who know the series. That yeah. kind of goes back to the comment I made to you, to you a little bit earlier of, you know, you know the series. You'd be able to step in and, and maybe do it justice if you were a filmmaker in that position. Well, if I was like, you know, if I was like Kevin Smith, of course I love Star Wars. I played that as a kid growing up. But would I make a good Star Wars movie? You know, I know the, the rules of Star Wars, and I know what makes a good Star Wars movie. But could I do it? Really? You know, I'd probably be uh, a self uh, a self appreciating fanboy. Give yourself a little bit of credit. I, uh. I think you'd still try to do it justice. So, <laughs> so anyway, that was the big news that broke uh, just a little bit after our last episode of the podcast, which I kind of looked and groaned and was like, "Oh man, that's going to be dead yeah. news, old news." A little bit by the time we get there. But the larger point of what it means for the Star Wars universe, that sort of carries on, yeah. even if the news is maybe not as fresh as it once was. So. And one quick segue here from Star Wars, got to say it, to Star Trek, the brand new series, Star Trek Discovery, starts on Sunday the 24th. It's, Does it? It's not a movie, but it's an online series, <sighs> and it's part of a larger mythology, so it's going to be a big one. It looks good. It does. That paywall. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, but the pre- paywall. The series premiere is going to air on CBS TV, yes. so you'll be able to see the first episode. And if you like it, uh, I actually signed up for CBS All Access last night, Did so it's four ninety nine a month. Um, limited commercials. You can do a bigger package with no commercials, but eh. um, I'm a Trekkie, so I'm watching it no matter what. I hope the over TV debut is so big that they suddenly go, "Okay, we need to boot a, a show off." Let's boot the Big Bang Theory or something like that out of here. They're trying to launch the CBS All Access thing. They need a big anchor to do it. Yeah. So the, I don't think that'll happen. They've got a big investment into doing it. They do. This is going to be their their rock. And early buzz, they're not going to screen it before it comes out, so there's no word on if it's any good or not. You'll know if people start dropping the service, whether it's any good or not. But I think with the people that are doing it, I think, yeah. Yeah. I'm so. curious what will happen with the music. Star Trek mu- Star Trek's music is always really good that's that's one part of it and then the casting what's the general idea i know it's a little bit further back in time so yeah a lot of intrigue that the comes new, with this the series. new theme has been released by the way so you can hear has it, it. Okay. plays a lot of homage to the original series but not exactly it's got a lot of thick homage to it okay but it does its own thing i'll have to check it out then before we jump into ensembles we're going to get into our topic we do want to remind you spoilers may lie ahead now primarily we're talking about cast here so i don't foresee spoilers but some we'll discuss some movies though so yeah remember last episode where i spoiled the kingsman for you whoops yeah a little bit spoiler i, I still I didn't... haven't i still haven't watched it yet and all you did now was just remind me of you that were warned. so <laughs> i was warned it happens sorry these, these things do happen so so be I, warned I, I need to be willing to deal with it that's that's what i need to do hey but it won't diminish the story i think watching the trailer for number two you kind of figured that out that oh well he's back oh he, he's back but he didn't make it out of the first one yes. but yet he's huh i think that kind of spoiled it for you you know the kingsman movies sort of speak to our topic today of ensemble casts ensemble casts i feel like are more and more common these days with their existence and the do ability the ability to be able to do them the feasibility of them i think is even more prevalent these days than than we've ever seen in the past i mean think about it movies back in in the 40s the 50s even into the 60s to some extent they were you want to get top billing in these movies there's maybe one big star or two big stars or even three or four sometimes when you get when you start getting into that five six seven eight nine ten big stars that you have in a movie you didn't see that very often back in the day these days it feels like with the unending budget numbers that these different movies have today ensemble casts almost feel like the norm in some regard. It's not just about getting a headliner or two anymore, Dave. It's about having a bunch of headliners in movies today. And you have these actors and actresses who who like working with uh, an eclectic array of people rather than this movie needs to be about me. Yeah, uh, but you know, and I know you're going to get into this a little more. Back in the day, there were such things as contract players. If you had a yes. contract with Universal or Paramount or Columbia... That's where you were, you yep. know. So if uh, if Big Star won, and it was about luring other actors or actresses from one to another, sure. basically. But if they had a four picture deal or whatever, and they just finished the first one and they're mm-hmm. a huge star, well, they're not going to go work with star number two who's over at the other studio because yeah. they're maybe at the end of their deal. But you're well, starting yours. That carried itself over into the '60s. I I can remember 
Further for instance, than that. yeah, even beyond that, I can remember reading about Elvis Presley and the movie contract that that he had in place because I mean he was doing all of his music, but he had these movies that they would also uh, put together, and some more successfully than others. But they would, and he would usually be the big headliner with. Maybe one or two exceptions, one being Viva Las Vegas because they had Anne Margaret in there with them as well. So that's like a, a co-billing kind of thing there. But yeah, it's it was a very prevalent thing back in the day. And that's why if you knew that a such and such picture was coming, it, it would be this actor or actress and the mo- the motion picture company that yeah. they were with. You know, even um, playing off that a little bit, you look at um, a movie like Singing in the Rain, which kind of was was interesting for its time because it talked about how that was a prevalent thing in the, from the silent era going over into the, the talkies era of it was you'd put two you put an actor and actress together perhaps and then you'd you'd put them with that film company and it was just the thing. So ensembles didn't really have much of a chance to ever happen yeah um you could sometimes get some that were built uh at a movie company i want to think in the 70s all the disaster movies because you think and i'm just thinking off the top of my head i haven't researched this this is just coming out of my left ear um but you'd have universal do earthquake or whatever and you get all these you know stars some big names some well-known character actors and it's a possibility where they all under a universal contract, and obviously not just for the movie, but did they all have long contracts? Did George Kennedy have a long contract to do mm-hmm. all the airport movies? Um, it's possible. So they were able to build some of those internally rather than, say, an Ocean's Eleven where Warner Brothers would sign them up for one movie and then do more. Right. Um, it's, it's a question as to how that all kind of started. But I think the all-star casts, if not characters, like when you get Dracula and Frankenstein and the Wolfman all in the same movie, you know, then you get into the 70s where you start getting all-star casts, whether it was comedy classics or whether it was, you know, the, the disaster movies come to mind. Comedies, we'll touch on them a little bit more later because they, I think, were a big part of how ensembles became more of a thing. I did a little bit of research. How far back do you think the earliest ensemble would go if you had to, to dub something an early ensemble movie? Mm, I might go too deep on you for the answer for this, but I got to think he goes way back. Because, I mean, if you're talking plays, I mean, I'm sure you could get some well-known actors at a particular playhouse way back in the day doing I'm doing Shakespeare or whoever. You know, I mean, it's it's I can go way back. How about September 1916, Dave? I'd believe it. D.W. Griffith. Is that a name that comes to mind? Oh, Oh, yes, definitely. When it comes to film, D.W. Griffith, certainly. His film Intolerance was a very early one. Um, That was kind of like a... a, It was like his first big movie that he did after the birth of a nation. Um, And then this this movie Intolerance, it was essentially... Um, four parallel storylines that he put together, and it, it's considered one of the great movies of the silent era. Each one of those parallel storylines went th- across several centuries, and they had di- he had different casts for every single story that he had within the larger picture itself. And a very, very early example of an ensemble cast. So he, he was he was quite the innovator when it when it came to the movies that he put together. But as we mentioned with the talkies that came along then and the way things followed into the 30s and 40s with the black and white era, there weren't too many 
big ensemble casts that really came around. I think when the 50s and 60s came around, I think that's when things really started to change a little bit. And one movie that comes to mind that that I think really helped change the game, I don't know if there if there were any others. Would the Rat Pack movies count as early? I would think those would be early well, examples. How, the original Ocean's How early 11? was the... Uh, that one came along in the 60s. Yeah, early so 60s. The one, that, the one that comes to mind first is Around the World in 80 Days oh, yeah. from 1956. Yeah. Because you look at that one and you have kind of a mix of of what had been going on in Hollywood for so many years of one or two really big stars at the top. And then you, but then you have these well ingrained character actors. Yes, well ingrained character actors, cameo after cameo that you find within there. I mean, David Niven was really the big star within that movie. And uh, is it Cantaflas? Is that how you, is that how you say um, the uh, the little the assistant who uh, who David Niven's character um, had along in there um, on the journey? F- Phileas Fogg's assistant, um, who's Whose name? Yeah, his valet, whose name I can't pronounce. But the cast is is massive, though. There there are a couple of they're the main characters between uh, Fog and then his assistant and the princess and then the inspector who's who's trying to 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 track him down. But the number of cameo appearances in there was huge, and I I think for its time pretty innovative with all the cameos that were in there. I remember watching and when they were going through the. Uh, the post credit stuff and they were going through all the different people and like at the particular point along the journey where they popped up i could not believe some of the names or even that point where you see frank sinatra playing the piano as they're out in the wild west it's it was i think one of the big early uses of an ensemble cast and yet it was sort of a bridge because there are all these cameos that are being used so you don't have to really splurge the budget too much to get these people in for a cameo. Yeah, I think, and I, I know you've kind of got an agenda with some of what you want to say, and I hope I'm not going to derail your thoughts with my commentary on this, but uh, some movies are more of a spectacle than a story. Around- that's that's a big part of where these ensemble casts, I think, started, was spectacle type of movies. Yeah, look at this star, and this, oh, look over there, there's another. It's mm. almost like the naked gun. You could see it a hundred times, and you're going to see on the hundredth time Something you never saw the first 99, because there's 101 things in there. And uh, when you get a cameo like that from everybody, where maybe it's, you know, like having a Stormtrooper and go back to Star Wars again, where all these famous people were wearing Stormtrooper masks. The rumor is that Prince Harry is going to be a Stormtrooper in the new movie. Uh, but would you know that if you knew where to look? No, you had to right. almost be told that. So that's kind of where it started versus where the ensemble is part of a good story. Mm-hmm. Ocean's Eleven, I think, would be a great example of that. Lord of the Rings we'll, is a big example We'll of get that. into Ocean's Eleven here in a minute because I, I do want to go to both Ocean's Elevens for that example. The 60s, I think, really started to take off then. I think Around the World in 80 Days showed what could be possible, at least a little bit, at one example there of what could be possible bringing together a large cast of big stars, even if you had to go cameos. But then I think the 60s really changed the game. Yeah. Look at a movie like Lawrence of Arabia, which is my all-time favorite movie, as I've mentioned here on this podcast. The cast that they have in there, you have Peter O'Toole as T.E. Lawrence. He is the centerpiece of the movie. And yet, look at all the other actors who are around him in that movie. Alec Guinness, Anthony Quinn, Jack Hawkins, Omar Sharif, Jose Ferrer, who was in a, a minute role 
in the movie, and yet it, he they still got him for it. Anthony Quayle. Claude Rains, who's in a, a somewhat smaller role, but a, an important role as Mr. Dryden. Arthur Kennedy in there as well. You have all these great names who are, and but it goes back to your point about the epic, and the epic was a big way to be able to start bringing together a lot of stars in one big movie. Have an epic, and, and you would start to do that. Another one that definitely did that in the early 60s, The Longest Day. Look at all the the huge stars that are in The Longest Day. But this is where plot started to change, where it was it a movie like that was a, there are a bunch of plot storylines going on together all within this one big movie. I mean, all the big names. I mean, not just John Wayne. You've got Sean Connery pops up in there, and that shocked me the first time I watched The Longest Day, and I was like, Sean Connery's in this. Look at that. Henry Fonda in it as well. And then you've got all these other, Richard Burton in it too. Robert Mitchum in the movie as well. And then so many others who are in the movie all the way through, and and many of them were basically in cameos, and yet it's all fitting into that one big story. You know, I think to talk ensemble it almost implies something, that it's a group cast. Um, for example, I don't want to go into TV too much. We're going to talk more about movies. But, for example, the, the TV, show- though, has a lot of examples oh, of its the own. TV's built on ensembles. Yeah. But um, to, to use a TV example of where a true ensemble versus a top billing kind of a thing, uh, TV's The West Wing. Rob Lowe, for a lot of years, thought he was the lead guy. He had top billing through the whole run of the show. He was an assistant to the president of the Why show. Why would he think that? Martin Sheen's the president. Martin Sheen was the president, but the original concept of the show was that the president was going to be a background character, and it was all about the people working there. It just turned out that his character was so popular that yeah. as the first season went, he was moved much more to the foreground. But the original concept was that it was going to be Rob Lowe leading this underlings group working for the president, and he would only have cameo appearances. He thought he was the lead of the show, not realizing he was in an ensemble. And when he finally realized that in the fourth season, he left the show. Ooh. He left the show because he thought he was going to be the star of the show. So was it really a true ensemble? Yes, just as much as Frasier, you could say, was a true ensemble, even though Kelsey Grammer was front and center. Everybody else was a close second. When you think of movies like Ocean's Eleven, absolutely, George Clooney, Matt Damon, and, and Brad Pitt, they're the top three, but just a step behind him are all the rest. With Lawrence of Arabia, it's clearly... Clearly O'Toole's movie. I yes. mean, he's front and center by more than a step. He's got a great cast around him, but to say that it, I don't know if I could quote, I don't know if I can go along with the ensemble with that one because it'd be like saying Spies Like Us is an ensemble when it isn't. I mean, it's really it's Chase and Aykroyd with a whole bunch of supporting characters that are way a bunch of notches below him. Bob Hope shows up in that movie, you know, but he's barely there. Frank Oz is in the movie, but he's barely there. It's a lot of those things. Right. So is it an ensemble in that it's got a big cast, but they're barely in it? Or is it a true ensemble where Carl Reiner has about as much to do with uh, the movie Ocean's Eleven as Brad Pitt does? You know, that would be a true ensemble. Definitely. Lord where, of the Rings, yes. Where you can really balance it out. But sometimes you get those those hierarchies within the ensemble oh, yeah. that, that you sometimes see. And and there's there's a couple of good examples of that, but... Do want to remind you, Rick and Nick Talk Flicks is sponsored by the Bemidji Theater, and we appreciate having them as our sponsor of the podcast to be able to keep Rick and Nick Talk Flicks going and to have this uh, this awesome podcast that we have. And it's a great place to go catch a movie, so go check one out at the Bemidji Theaters. You mentioned comedies, Dave. The a big little bit staple earlier. of uh, oh yeah, 
Definitely. And I think that comedies really helps launch things a little bit further along as far as making ensembles possible. And you go back to the 1960s. I'll, it's not exactly a comedy. It's, it's a heist film. But the Rat Pack doing Ocean's Eleven. Oh, yeah. that, was, uh, that was a very prime example in that day of, of a, an ensemble type of cast. And, I mean, you've got the, you've got the Rat Pack. Who make up the 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 eleven, and then other, and then their their company, and then you also have the others who were in that movie. I mean, Angie Dickinson was was the really big, the other really big one in that movie. But then there's also some some cameos that they had in there too. Um, that kind of launched it, and we'll get into more about Ocean's Eleven later because there was also the remake, which followed the same idea. Let's get together a cast Hugely of different stars. Movies though, keep that very in mind. very different movies. Yes, but. Comedies really took the the um, ensemble idea to a whole new level and to a whole different type of idea. And I'm thinking of it's a mad, mad, mad world when I think about that. Because that's another movie that you look and you go, wait, they're in there? They're in there. They're in there. It built on that idea that Around the World in 80 Days started, which... It's a spectacle ensemble. It had a main cast, but then look at all the cameos. Uh, It it was a big main cast, for starters. But then look at all the cameos, which included the Three Stooges in there as well, as as part of it. That's just how big that cast was. I mean, even if you look at the poster for It's a Mad, Mad, Mad World... They have this this clump of the cartoon images of the different people who are in the movie, and it is hilarious, all the people who are in it. But then you have the, the principal cast, which, just to name a few, Spencer Tracy, Buddy Hackett, Ethel Merman, Mickey Rooney, Terry Thomas, all the people who are in, and, and more, who are, are in this principal cast. And then you, we're not even into the cameos yet. Comedies were able to do that. Same thing, too, with, with another movie that I, I like a lot. Those magnificent men in their flying machines or how I flew from London to Paris in 25 hours, 11 minutes. Another comedy movie that brought together a huge ensemble cast of bring all up, being in one place, big story. Um, bring, up your fa- bring up your favorite, Dr. Strangelove. Clearly an ensemble. It kind of was. Peter Sellers times three. It kind of was. <laughs> An ensemble that featured one person playing three different roles. I suppose it it was its own ensemble in that way then um, as well, plus uh, plus some other terrific uh, role-playing within that movie as well. Um, but yeah, comedies really took it to a whole new level as far as what an ensemble cast could look like. And I think these comedians, they didn't – I guess they didn't really do movies quite as – Maybe not quite as frequently or, or quite in the same way, and they were willing to come together and say, yeah, let's let's do this. You know, I think it's also the structure of the story, action or drama. It's all about the story, where comedy, eh, the story does matter, of course, but it's more about the situations that you'll find yourself in. Yep. As actors, you need to play off of one another uh, in all of those. But in an action scene, you know, Die Hard with an ensemble cast wouldn't work. You know, you can't have 25 people highly billed running from machine gun fire. It doesn't work. But you get 25 different people hanging from balloons. Oh, they can all shout back at one another and make for a great scene. And you play off each other. In comedy, you could argue almost more than in others. Because yeah. it's all about the timing much more than anything else. If you get a bunch of experts, it can work well. Ensemble casts, I, I think as time went on, they went from being a way to get a lot of stars on screen to saying... 
hey, we can get a lot of stars to help make a movie really deep. And and Star Wars, I think, is a really good example of that because it's it brought together quite a few. It brought together young people who became stars and then added them to established stars like a like a Sir Alec Guinness who who was Obi Wan there in the early movies and and they they added them and then they became big stars and suddenly hey this is an ensemble that we've got on our hands here a little bit with the different people who who make up yeah. this cast and make it maybe not quite an ensemble to the same the argument could be made yeah we'll put it that way not quite to the same extent as some of the others but ensembles I I feel like have become commonplace these days kind of getting back to the big point that I made at the beginning because movie budgets are so big now that you can afford to pay multiple big time stars and you can you can maybe meet their demands as far as salary plus i think the stars of today free of those constraints of the the production companies and and who they were with are more excited about doing collaboration and enjoy doing collaboration with a lot of other different people and enjoy coming together and saying, yeah, I want to work with this person. Take the Ocean's Eleven remake, for example. Look at all the the stars that are assembled for that movie and the way that they all come together within that movie. You do have your your core group. I mean, I have the poster from from the original Ocean's Eleven. It has... uh, Plus... Another neat thing about it that that Steven Soderbergh did was he had the cast in in order of appearance is is how he listed it. Um, actually, was it in order of appearance or it was alphabetical? Alphabetical. Alphabetical order. Introducing yeah. Julia Roberts, who two years earlier had won an Oscar for Aaron Brockovich. Correct. Yeah, but but was that that extra chip that yeah. was added in there that that extra piece that came in? Uh, so I got what you said there. Extra chip. Give me a Vegas movie. That's uh-huh. right. That's right. Yeah. So <laughs> in in alphabetical order, you're right. Yeah, it was in alphabetical order um, that they that they had it there and they. But then you look at the there you look at the poster though, and it was George Clooney, Matt Damon, Brad Pitt, Andy Garcia, Julia Roberts. There's your main five that you have there. And yet you look at the others who are in the movie, Don Cheadle, Bernie Mac, Scott Kahn, Casey Affleck, Carl Rainier, Elliot Gould, I mean Eddie James Eddie Jemison, other guys like that. Shabo Quinn, I guess, was the the lone maybe. Who is that? Who yeah. is in that movie? But he, I mean, to be the amazing Yen, you need to have somebody who can do all the things. Which he one's was the amazing Yen? He's a little Chinese guy. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, it's it's such a cool collection of people that came together, and yet there is that that little bit of separation within it. But you still know it's an ensemble cast. But you know, you didn't have the likes of Clooney and Pitt pushing down the smaller guys. Uh, the amazing Yen. Didn't have as much screen time as the others, but on as far as the story was, he was elevated just as much, and he was given a lot of screen time, and he was given his moments. While in a lot of other ensemble casts, not, not a lot, but others, there's a lot of competition. Go back to the towering Inferno. You have both Steve McQueen and Paul Newman, who did not like each other in real life, apparently, in the movie Top Build together. And the way that this structure was, they were both so competitive with one another as far as who was going to be the star of this movie um on the poster one guy got to be on top of the other guy on the opening credits it was reversed yep they had to have the exact same amount of lines and dialogue and if one guy had extra scenes written the other guy had to get the equal amount of i mean it was it was 
honestly stupid the way that it was. That's went. why I love that they were able to do something like this where nobody was given priority. It was yeah. alphabetical order that they went for the cast. I mean, how often do you see that these no. days? But but the the idea of modern day ensemble cast, you mentioned The Lord of the Rings earlier. Another great example. With the sweeping movies that we have of today and the sweeping budgets that come with them, it allows for these ensemble casts to be possible. The Lord of the Rings certainly showed how possible that can be. And superhero movies have really, really added a whole other dimension to ensemble casts and being able to put them together. It started, I think, with X-Men and with all that they were able to do. The earlier Batman movies, like in the 90s, they got progressively bigger as far as number of people. They they were still... There was still a, a bit of a separation, though, like Michael Keaton, Jack Nicholson in the early, in the very first Batman. You, you still have one or two or maybe three in the case of some of the others main characters and the main people playing them that stand out. X-Men, I think, started to change the game a little bit when, when they came along and had all the stars that they did playing the different characters and roles within those movies. And then now that we've gotten progressively more into the, the Marvel and the DC worlds, you're getting huge characters and huge roles that are uh, huge people who are playing them. And now we're all building toward what we're going to see with the DC movies as they progressively add more characters. And Marvel is already on that trajectory. Avengers Infinity more Avengers Infinity War might be the biggest collection of star power that we've ever seen yeah. in a movie. I think you have to look though at the story narrative and the way things are built and the way whether they work or not. Um, if you're talking about, say, the Batman movies, by the time they got to Batman and Robin, you had, oh, what, five, six big stars in the opening before you even saw the name of the movie, you know, and those were the guys. Uh, so as it was a solution to a bad script, let's make it bigger and better, make it bigger. It's got to be bigger. we got to make the next one bigger. It's going to be bigger. Get us big names for this. Well, that's not a solution. You know, movies like Valentine's Day and New Year's Day where it's just a whole bunch of stars. And, and Lucy, Love Actually is another love, one. Romantic comedies have that done a wor- lot of that. But that works. Yep. With a movie like Valentine's Day, they were loosely interconnected like a Pulp Fiction of romantic movies. Yeah. Pulp Fiction, good ensemble, by the way. Um, yeah, Quentin Tarantino's done yeah, a lot of that. He's big with the ensembles. He sure is. So if the solution is to make it bigger and you still have a lackluster script and the later into those Batman movies you got before you got to Christopher for Nolan, the less good and put together they were, most notably Batman and Robin, one of the worst movies ever made. Right. And then you got movies like the X-Men. You get some great actors and great cast, but that is designed to be an ensemble movie. It's not made to be bigger as much as this whole thing is about a group of mutants with superpowers working together as a team, learning about each other individually and as a collective. Batman isn't like that. Now we'll see how Batman works when you get to the Justice League because that's how that's designed right. to be. But not a standalone Batman movie where you could say he was outshone by a lot of the bad guys. And you're sort of revolving around to a greater and bigger point that I think is is worth coming to as we conclude here with the talking about ensembles. And that's the idea of how many is too many? How many stars is too many to, to where you start to get pulled between story and stars story and cast and how do you get how do you make it work with putting all of them together because i think we love the idea of an all-star collection of people being put together but much like in an all-star basketball game you can only put 5 on the floor at the same time and then you have to rotate everybody who's on and off 
Much like with these movies, you know, th- think about what they're going to have to do with the Avengers Infinity War. You have to find a way to develop and evolve the stories of every single person who you've assembled. Some who are big-time stars and some who are big-time characters who are much beloved. But you have to do that within a, a much larger story that you are also trying to put together. That's a tricky thing to juggle, and we, we've seen how hard that can be when you're trying to do all of that with everybody and and keep all the balls up in the air at the same time and how difficult that can be. And ensemble casts just add to that a little bit because sometimes you run into those stars who don't play nice with that idea of being in an ensemble, even though they may have been signed on to be in that position. It can be a very, very tricky balance to have unless they're on board with the collective vision and if you have a good enough collective vision. Well, Ocean's Eleven is such a good one to come back to because it's a perfect example of how an ensemble works when it works well. Did you get the feeling at any point during any of those movies that any one cast member was trying to get over on the others? No. No. It was a whole bunch of... Hey, guys... Let's go out to Vegas for a couple months. Let's film a movie. Let's have a ball. It was a it was a buddy movie. Yeah. It, was, it was great because of that. I mean, I, I was going to get around to this at the end as far as what your favorite ensemble movie that you can think of is. For me, it as far as a true ensemble, it is Ocean's Eleven. Yeah. I, I love how good of an ensemble it is. If we're gonna cut out like other other ones like superhero movies, I mean The Dark Knight, I rate one of the best movies of all time. In my book, and, and Lawrence of Arabia, too. I mean, and those have great ensemble casts. But if we're going to say just, like, true, on, it's an ensemble for ensemble's sake, it's Ocean's Eleven. Because they they do it seamlessly, and they have a grand old time doing the movie together and, and, be, and putting together this excellent story with this excellent cast that has surprises left and right. But that's what brings me back to my, to my first point was Ocean's Eleven is a great example of uh, an ensemble. The Dark Knight, great example of a working ensemble. But uh, when you're putting together a movie, what is your goal? Is it to tell a good story? Okay, well, I'm going to do this character and this character and so forth and so forth. Once you come up with a story that works on paper, then you think about stars. Or does it sometimes work the other way? Sometimes it can work. Sometimes the other it works way. the other way. Well, you got to put Look this at the guy romantic in. comedies that you have these days. I think a lot of them work that way. Some to a better extent as far as making the story work than others. Yeah, um, but some if you get a studio that says you got to do this, you can make whatever movie you want, but you got to put this guy in it. They got a deal. So now you have yeah. to bend the story to fit around this thing, and you get things that just don't work. So you get things like uh, people that are horribly miscast in roles. You get things where it's clearly an ensemble, but one or two or many members of the ensemble are, are struggling and fighting with one another to get to be the star of an ensemble cast, which in itself is horrible. If you show up and you do your part, look at The Dark Knight. Like you said, great example. Everybody shows up, they do their part, and nobody's trying to outshine the others. You can make the case that Heath Ledger managed to do that in The Dark Knight, but I don't think it was by greed. I think he came up with such an unusual character that captured people, and it worked. Yes. You know, but uh, Michael Caine, who's the butler, I mean, is he not a fantastic actor? He nailed that part, but he's certainly not the star of the movie. Doesn't need to be. Right. And that's that kind of goes back to the point that I made about Jose Ferrer when I was talking about Lawrence of Arabia a little bit. It, there needs to be that willingness to be in the role that you're given, even if it is a lesser one. And that is sort of how the ensemble can evolve into something really, really good, rather than let's cram as many stars as we can into this and hope that it works. Or 
If you're going to cram them in and just have a grand old time, Ocean's Eleven, it's a mad, mad, mad world. Prime examples of how it can work. I think there's a couple of different uh, levels of what is an ensemble. You've got the ones where they just throw everything at the wall, like the Mad Mad World, I mean, or Around the World in 80 Days. They throw everything at the wall. Then there are ones where you get uh, a bunch of actors that are all in an equal role, like uh, Lord of the Rings comes to mind for that. You get a bunch of people where you get two main stars or three main stars and a bunch of well-known people underneath. And you get examples of where it works and where it works really well, where you get everybody come together. Since we're coming up on Halloween season, the movie Clue is a really good example. very good example. And another one, if you've never seen it, it's a Neil Simon. I think it's either Clue is based on Neil Simon's Murder by Death or vice versa because they're very much the same movie. Um, but they're both fantastic with a great ensemble cast. If you're a Peter Sellers fan, you'll want to see it. Yes. Murder I, by Death. Oh, I've heard mid, about that mid-70s. one. Mid-70s. Yeah, I've heard about that one, that it's a really good ensemble one. If you are looking for ensemble movies that are coming up, I can tell you this, and we talked about it when we were talking about our our fall preview, Murder on the Orient Express yeah. looks like it's going to be a big ensemble, which has been previously done before. I looked into that a little bit, and there there is a previous one that had an ensemble cast as well, because... That's an ensemble type of story. Not that, to mention Justice League and together. Star Wars coming. And, yes. Uh, there are always going to be examples of ensembles, but ones that are done well and those that are just, let's put some stars in there. There's like a it's an ingredient. It is, but it isn't. There's a big difference, certainly. Yeah, yeah but, but check it out sometimes. Look at some of your favorite movies and, and wonder, you know, is this an ensemble? If it's a more current movie, you know, appreciate how we've gotten to this point as far as ensembles and I guess the budgets that make ensembles possible, but maybe look back into some of the older movies because to see an ensemble cast in an older movie is is quite something. It's pretty cool seeing that. How about before we go, Dave, do you have an ensemble cast that you really like? I, I know you love the usual suspects, yeah. and that's kind of an ensemble cast. Yeah, there. yeah, it is, but that's not my all-time favorite. It's how they all work together. I got to go with the Ocean's 11 crew and Ocean's 13. I didn't like Ocean's 12 that much, but 11 and 13 were fantastic. Yeah. But I mean, through all so of them. So you're in the same boat as yeah, me. I really then. am. And they just, did it work well? Absolutely. It was oh, a yeah. fun, great movie, served excellently by the cast. You cannot do better than that. That's the bar. According to me, that's the Mount Rushmore of ensembles. Danny Ocean right in the middle. Slap that like it's not. Yes, my friend. put her there, man. That makes me happy to hear that. That is that is cool that we're on the same page about that. It's just such a good You ensemble. can't beat it. I mean, say it's what you want good. about Lord of the Rings. Say what you want about Star Wars. That cast together doesn't work better than Ocean's <sighs> Eleven. And it's so slick. Yeah. Such a slick cast. All right. That was pretty fun, yeah. talking ensembles. We're not exactly an ensemble here, although if Rick and Nick we're, would pop in here someday, we could become an ensemble. We're a team of four, but they went for star billing and realized that this is the what 12th, 13th episode. They haven't done one. Well, we're the stars of the show. They walked out. They were ready to do it, and they walked out because yeah. they have top billing but didn't get the most screen time. We had a pretty rough production meeting last time around with trying to get this all put together. Let me wipe this tear away since they're not here. <laughs> there we go. All right. You feeling better? Oh, much better. Okay. I'm Joel Hoover. I'm Brooks Brookerson. Wait, no. Yeah, right. Wait, that was you. I'm sorry. Now we're having cases of mistaken identity here in this ensemble. Yeah, I think we might have an ensemble of multiple personalities here yes, with we the do. way no, that we this don't. is developing, I guess. But uh, anyway, thank you for joining us here on this most recent episode of Rick and Nick Talk Flicks, and we will see you at the movies.